Michael, if you can hear me, I'm in the nebula. Book? Whatever just happened down there, you can't let it happen again. It nearly caused another burn. Sukal? He caused the burn? How? Bodies adapt. All this dilithium and subspace radiation, his cells acclimatized to it in utero as they divided. Transfer complete. Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith and joining me on the bridge. This is Tyler Orton, ready to engage at Warp 10. And we're here this week to pay off the cliffhanger from last week. We're going to tackle the best and worst of New Trek, part two, this time focusing on the worst. Yeah, and look, I, I, I think our original intent was to bring Star Trek up, you know, not just like punch down at all. Mm-hmm. I So look, if you want to hear us be positive, go back and listen to uh, the previous episodes. Uh, I guess, Cam, we're just doing a lot of punching down, which we've been doing with a lot of the new Trek, at least the live action stuff. Uh, save for, look, spoiler alert, I for me personally, I don't have any episodes of Strange New Worlds here on my worst of list. But uh, we'll, we'll see if there's other sorts of uh, entries that we might find with uh, some of the other shows. But uh, I want to provide like good, solid reasoning behind why an episode might end up on my worst of list. I don't want to just say stuff like, well, it violates canon, bro. Or, you know, sure. um, you know, uh, what's with all this like wokeness, man? You know, like I, I have no interest in doing that. Like I, you and I, we come at things from like a storytelling perspective. Like how does a story hold up? Does it make sense? Do we track the characters' journeys? Um, you know, j- just that sort of angle versus us getting into the kind of uh, granular details and being pedantic about things, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's easy to come on and just be like, this episode sucked. I was bored. But I think we'd like to talk about maybe like why this episode really great against us. And we talked last week about how New Trek, when it's, you know, firing on all cylinders, can really work and be exciting and be the sort of Star Trek stories that keep us going along with this franchise and excited to see what's coming up. Maybe not so much with like, you know, the <laughs> Tilly Starfleet Academy, you know, thing or the Section 31, but we want to see good Star Trek storytelling. And last week, we talked about the episodes that lead that way. This batch this week, maybe point to the stuff we're concerned about. I don't want to say that we hate or dislike, but the stuff we're concerned about continuing on as maybe trends into the future. Yeah, and I will say this. Uh, all of New Trek was very well represented in our best of list. Uh, you know, as much as we kind of complained, you know, a lot about Picard and Discovery, they were they were on the list, you know, with, with some, they have some legit great episodes and they've gotten it right uh, many times. So I, I don't think like we were just all out haters, but I think we also have the sense that uh, we know it's possible for them to do better. And it's, you know, been, you know, proven many a time just with those entries that we talked about last week. And I do think it's entirely possible that we are on an upswing um, because I think there's been a bit of a rough patch where we were talking about Picard season two and Discovery, you know, seasons three and four. But, you know, Strange New Worlds has been very good. We've got Lower Decks coming back, which is 
so far very consistent in terms of delivering good episodes. We've got more Prodigy coming. Um, and then whatever new shows they launch, hopefully those can deliver. So we could be, you know, maybe crawling out of the dregs a little bit. Kind of like when Marvel, you know, after the first Avengers movie, were kind of struggling with like Thor the Dark World and stuff. And then they kind of said, okay, we understand what some of our mistakes are. And they lifted themselves back up. So that's what I'm hoping for from Trek. What we're getting out of the phase four uh, of Marvel when it comes to Star mm. Trek, and we're looking forward to phase five. But uh, hey, did you watch the uh, the trailer for Wakanda Forever or the teaser? That that movie looks beautiful. Yes, and I am completely baffled given Marvel's long history of very generic looking films. <laughs> I cannot like I'm legit excited for Wakanda Forever. I was scratching my head about how they're really going to. Uh, do this movie in a respectful way but i you know ryan coogler he's a fantastic filmmaker uh, mm-hmm. that trailer has me excited for uh, look marvel's not known for its great marketing nope. this is, may have been the best marvel trailer of all time and like ryan coogler has kind of a you know history of being very much recognized by critics for having some really visually bold stuff and i think there was bits of that in black panther that really you know in, featured that but then you had like that back half where you had like the CG fighting and everything that a lot of people re- realized did not look great. And I'm kind of hopeful that he maybe took some of those criticisms to heart and is like, I'm going to deliver something that really looks fantastic. And it looks like he may really do that because I was just blown away watching this trailer. I can't wait for this movie. Yeah. Uh, who needs CG when you have um, uh, puppetry? That's I believe that's what he's going to be doing. That's what I'm hoping for. <laughs> Okay. So, Cam, I think you kicked it off uh, last week with uh, your uh, number 10 first uh, for best. I will kick it off with my number 10 for worst. And look, uh, before I get into it, I, I want to say, like, uh, there, there's like two things that I was weighing with episodes. You know, like what makes like a, a bad experience? And more often than not, it is as if I kind of feel betrayed by the time I get to the end of it, whether they are doing things to characters that just don't make sense. Or they are making characters do stupid things just to further the plot. Another thing is uh, some of these episodes, uh, they serve more as kind of a um, a signal within any given season that things are going off the rails. And this is kind of the, the point of no return that I can identify where th- this is where bad things start to happen. So that's kind of how... I've picked some of these episodes. Some of them might not seem super egregious at first blanche, but when you kind of really think about what's going on here, you'll understand why uh, my number 10, The Sanctuary, this is from Mm -hmm. season three of Star Trek Discovery. Uh, The number 10 here, it, it is when I realized that despite the amazing potential that you have for throwing the crew, you know, 800 years into the future, and launching them with some cool story ideas, you know, where you're, you know, like an episode like People of Earth, like that was a great one for me. You followed up with, uh, you know, Forget Me Not, where you're playing around with kind of the uh, the Dax sort of legacy, or not the Dax legacy, but the Trill legacy and, and where they are right now. And then you follow it up with like a lot of so-so episodes, you know, like, um, you know, uh, Die Trying, The Seed Vault. I'm like, okay, well, they'll figure things out. And then you've got like stuff like Scavengers, which is kind of the uh, not so much an homage to Running Man as it is just like a boring ripoff. And then you've got Unification 3. And I'm like, okay, you're more than halfway through the season at this point. And when you hit me with the Sanctuary, which we're dealing with like space locusts and, uh, you know, books, very, very boring home planet and is very, very boring, um, 
family members. Right. And it's a story that's introducing uh, Osira for the first time, who doesn't turn out to be um, the, the most layered of villains that we've ever seen in Star Trek. To me, this is kind of the turning point where I'm like, oh, they've really kind of shot themselves in the foot with what would be otherwise a, a great premise, a great turning point for the series to reinvent itself. And these are the stories that they're interested in telling when there's so much more potential there. This is why I have Sanctuary at number 10, because it really signaled to me that the writers didn't really know how to capitalize on everything they had set up uh, going from season two into season three. This was, I think, I don't want to say it's like, you know, my worst episode of season three, but it was maybe the most deflating where it was like, as you said, you'd built up, you know, we're going into the future. The end of season two discovery was so exciting as to what could happen and it was just this slow deflating feeling through season three. And then you get like this episode, which I just remember sitting through it. And it, I started to have this thought that I have a lot when we discuss Discovery, where I go like, these writers are sitting in their room. They have freedom to kind of do whatever they want in the Star Trek universe. How are they excited when they come up with this one? I know. How are they handing this in and being like, oh man, I can't wait to shoot this. I can't wait to see this. I can't, you know, wait to cast it. Like, what is it in this material that they're walking away being like, I am so excited to be working on Star Trek? I have no idea because this episode, in terms of just like storytelling, it was pretty much a slog. It was, you know, basically taking a fairly thin concept that wasn't that interesting and just stretching it out for an hour. Um, it just kind of gave you nothing. And those are the kind of episodes that like, I don't even know that I can hate them because they're kind of so forgettable that they don't stick with me. But when you have a 10-episode season or whatever this was, was this uh, 14 maybe, season three? I believe it was 14. Yeah. So you have your 14 episodes. You have your arc you want to deliver. Why do you have these like pit stops where nothing happens when that's the whole point of this arc-based storytelling? I understand in a 26-episode season how you could have an episode like this happen. And it's like, well, look, this was a rough week for the writers. But... This should not really happen under the umbrella of what they want to do with Star Trek. Well, it's also at the point where they're just dragging out the whole burn mystery. And uh, mm -hmm. so I, I just want to clarify, this is 13 episodes uh, for the season three. And so they've been burning, or not burning, they've been dragging out the burn <laughs> for eight episodes at this point. The two to follow up, it's the Terra Firma uh, two-parter. And that's wrapping up the Giorgio stuff. And then we then we finally start to address in the final three episodes of the season, we finally get into what the burn actually is. And I'm just like, the fact that that's where we have to leave it off. Uh, the sanctuary is the height of the mystery, and it was never a good mystery. And like, I, I had zero interest. I never cared. And it was one of those... It, it, it's also dragged down by Burnham kept announcing, like, until we figure out the burn, we can never get the Federation back together. And I'm like, how does she know this? Like, right. how can she possibly know this? And the reason she, quote unquote, knows this is because that's what the writers have declared in their own heads. And like, but, but nobody else <laughs> knows why it's so significant. It's, it's kind of like why they never, well, you know, you know how they never explained why the Red Angels mystery was, was so important to Starfleet? It's just like Pike shows up and he's like, we have to find out hmm. what these Red Angels are. Or like, why? Never explained it. You know, the same thing was going on with the burn here. And, and the, the sanctuary was just like the, the height of my frustration with that ongoing mystery. Season four of Discovery had obviously a lot of problems. But one thing I think it was smart to correct was like, 
instead of dragging out the mystery of what was going on that season, they at least kind of nailed down kind of what was going on around the halfway point or so, maybe a little past that, versus the burn where you didn't find out till like, I don't know, two episodes before the end or something. Yeah. So my number 10 is Saints of Imperfection from Season 2, Discovery. This is the episode where we go on a very confusing journey to bring Culber back to life. This is also um, Tilly dealing with, um, you know, her imaginary friend um, and entering into the mycelial network. In theory, kind of interesting to go into the mycelial network. The show has obviously dabbled in that and kind of showcased that from day one of what the show is. But this episode felt so haphazard and so confusing. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes to, I think it was when we went episode by episode and did a breakdown of Discovery Season 2, where we like talk through what actually happened in this episode and how Culber came back to life. And it's just so convoluted. And to me, this was like the one of the biggest red flags I'd encountered at this point as to where Discovery could go very, very wrong with this arc-based storytelling. And I don't enjoy going back to this one, that's for sure. It was Discovery's best efforts to fix, you know, that that bury your gaze trope you see in television Mm. where uh, you have a gay character who is killed if only to create drama and and really kind of uh, dehumanizes the character to a certain degree. They're they're more like an object uh, to um, spark, you know, uh, trauma within, say, their partner more than a character in and of themselves. And uh, uh, the fact that, you know, you can tell Discovery have, have uh, a lot of efforts to be a very progressive uh, contemporary show, the fact that they found themselves, con- you know, guilty of that bury your gaze trope, they tried to course correct, but I was at the point where I knew if they were going to bring Culper back, it would have to be in a profoundly unsatisfying, convoluted manner. And I did not mm-hmm. realize it would be in such a way that would make me uh, as angry and betrayed as it did here. In that, like, I kind of, like, as Culber was one of my favorite characters in uh, season one. And believe it or not, Cam, my favorite character in season one was, in fact, Michael Burnham. Uh, until she became a completely different character in subsequent seasons. But I I, I really ranked uh, Culber up high. And I, I honestly wish that they had probably, like, okay... I like what they've done with him now, but I, I've had those thoughts, you know, like, like was it just better for the character that they just kind of left him uh, dead rather than create the magic to bring him back to life? It essentially was, like, no different than magic, and it made me angry how they went about doing it, and it was just, it was so stupid. There's a fantastic clip from our best of, uh, I think it was our best of 2019 uh, episode, and it was us just explaining, like, as you said, Cam, th- 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 like, if... Uh, You'll link to it, but it's just us explaining what exactly happened, and it made no sense. And going through that mycelial network where we have, like, Tilly's brain fungus friend, like, Hmm. being her, like, little guide, I was just like, what am I watching here? You know, it it was just like, it's... It wasn't like, oh, this is science-based. It was mostly like I was watching like a fantasy television show where the rules don't matter. And it makes me disengage here. And as much as I appreciate that Culber is back right now, I felt betrayed by the writers that they would, A, do that to the character in the first place, and then not give him a satisfying reason for actually coming back. It didn't seem justified to me. And I think one of the things with Star Trek is that's kind of funny is like there's this like pseudoscience to Star Trek where a lot of it is mumbo jumbo that they're spouting out to solve problems. But it's interesting how like 
you can have Jordy, you know, announce how they can solve some sort of temporal problem, and you go, makes sense to me. Whereas, like, a case like this, you actually stop and go, wait, this doesn't make any sense. And it feels like because it's overly convoluted, it doesn't seem to exist within the rules they've established on the universe. There's, like, all these circumstances that feel coincidental that need to happen for, you know, ultimately Culber to come back. It's just like this long laundry list of things you don't do in storytelling because the audience, I think Alfred Hitchcock called it the the, uh, icebox theory, where you sit and watch it and you go, okay, and then you walk away after, you know, the movie or the show or whatever, and you're, like, looking in the fridge to grab a drink and you're like wait a second, that didn't make any sense. And that's kind of what they fell into with this episode very badly. Yeah. Uh, So uh, my number nine is All is Possible. This is the uh, cadet episode from (laughs) uh, season four of Star Trek Discovery. It it might seem just on the surface like, oh, is it really that bad? You you also have the kind of the Navarre uh, political intrigue storyline going on. I want you to actually think about like uh, how much the Navarre political intrigue story just did not make any sort of sense at all with regards to negotiating a potential exit out of the Federation if Navarre chose to do so. That aside, um, we've been hearing nothing but uh, efforts to develop a Starfleet Academy spinoff. And if this was their best effort at some sort of backdoor pilot in which Tilly would be leading a group of disparate aliens into finding each other in precarious circumstances and learn to build their relationships, this is like the worst I could ever hope for from a Starfleet Academy uh, series. This made me feel very fearful over uh, what was coming with regards to Tilly's character for this, the rest of the season and what they ultimately would have wanted to do with her. Because my sense is when or if we get that Starfleet Academy show, uh, it's going to be essentially this. I hope they realize it was a terrible episode, and I hope they realize this is not what fans want. And I hope they realize that the dialogue, the casting, and just kind of the uh, characters, the cadet characters themselves, entirely... Just like Blandy McBlanderson plus like eye-rollingly bad in uh, everything that they executed there. I am so fearful that this is what the future holds. So this is why I have All is Possible, which just as an episode on its own, let's subtract the potential that this is where Starfleet Academy is going. It's just such a boring episode. Like I don't care about anything other than like uh, uh, Saru flirting with the president of Navarre. Yeah, I don't mind the stuff with Saru and the president of Navarre. Like that, I kind of like the character stuff there. This one was not on my list kind of because of that. But um, the problem with this one is there's too many comparison points to make to superior Star Trek stories. And I'm not talking about necessarily all timers, but like you think of like, you know, coming of age uh, from like season, what is that, one of TNG or something where like Wesley goes to like the Starfleet, um, you know, testing. Um, I think of also like the good shepherd with Janeway with like a group of kind of misfit cadets. And it's like these aren't all time great Star Trek episodes, but they found ways to kind of have that teaching process done in a way where you bought into the characters, you enjoyed the journey that they went through, and you felt satisfied when you reached the end. Even if the end was kind of silly, like with Wesley in the uh, room full of fire, it still delivered an emotional punch at the end where you said, okay, I'm interested to see where this goes. This episode left me as you know, you kind of indicated as well, uh, fearful that this could be what a Starfleet show could be, a Starfleet Academy show, because it could be so cloying and obvious, whereas I don't think that's what's needed. I think you want to have 
Something inspirational about young people going through an experience, not something that feels like it would almost be like a, I don't know, Hallmark movie or something. I'm just picturing uh, coming of age in which that Benzite uh, walks out of the room, clearly like uh, profoundly traumatized, but whatever he was exposed to in that simulation. Um, uh, this show, uh, this episode, uh, All is Possible, would have had a little bit of spice to it if Tilly subjected one of those cadets uh, to <laughs> such a traumatic <laughs> circumstance. But Kim, even like um, episodes that, uh, you know, don't reach for... Uh, greatness though you know think about an episode like valiant in which we have those uh, wayward starfleet cadets behind enemy lines during the uh, dominion wars it's not a fantastic episode but it has actually interesting things to say uh, about uh, command structures um, uh, people following orders blindly uh, uh, believing their own hype you know mm-hmm. did, did was there anything interesting to say about cadets in this episode no, it was just about people squabbling and then coming together to fight basically a dangerous alien. Haven't we seen this a million times in like every like teen show out there? You know, like people start off like, um, you know, uh, squabbling and then they're friends by the end of it, the hour. Yeah, yeah. Like it's very generic storytelling. Yeah, you're you're not doing anything new here. And I'm just like, wow, like you have the opportunity to kind of find your way into this world of Starfleet Academy that has, you know, kind of uh, <laughs> such a heritage to it. And, um, you know, like, like even the uh, the stuff that took place in uh, 2009 <laughs> had some mm-hmm. fun stuff to say, even with this just cupcake uh, giving Kirk a hard time, you know. So, I don't know. I, I Like, this one, it, it's on my list because it sig- signals for me yet again that the writers just don't know what they're doing when they're given... Um, so much potential at their hands to play within the landscape of Star Trek. Yep. So my number nine is Children of Mars, the short trek lead-in <laughs> for Picard, which, speaking of cloying, um, we were all excited about Picard. We didn't know it was really coming. We didn't know it would be kind of polarizing with fandom. We were just genuinely excited to see the journey of Jean-Luc continue. And I remember when they announced this short trek, we were all like, oh, what is this going to be? And what we got was something just riddled with cliches about these, you know, young girls who are fighting, all set to like a cover of David Bowie's Heroes, a very overused song in pop culture. And then they bond at the end because of the Mars attacks. And the whole thing just had a level of obviousness, cheesiness, over-sentimentality that was just kind of unbearable to watch. And that was the hype up for Picard. And I think this short track had really one thing to do, which was to get you excited about Picard. I was still excited about Picard, but I was not more excited because of this short track. I think I just walked out of this one shrugging my shoulders. We were baffled after we watched this one, and it has the exact same problem as All is Possible. You know, it's just like, oh, people don't get along at first, mostly because of uh, cultural misunderstandings, but by the end, they can come together when uh, need be. Uh, and <laughs> Let's just spell it out here. Um, this is also supposed to fill you in on kind of the um, kind of the backstory of what's going on during this period in uh, Starfleet leading up to the start of uh, Star Trek Picard when we're talking about the synth attack on uh, Mars. And well, Cam, when we actually saw the synth attack take place on Star Trek Picard, um, I made it realize we didn't need Children of Mars to set anything up. Like the uh, the depiction there with um, I think uh, the uh, synth's name was F8. You know uh, the setup mm-hmm. there 
how effective he was at just turning on all the humans like uh he was like a terminator or something like that uh that was far more uh far more effective than uh watching like some preteen girls like get, get into like a, a rather brutal fist fight in the middle yeah. of school which i also thought that like i don't know wouldn't federation kids be above that by then well, you would think so. I mean, if you were to ask Gene Roddenberry, probably, <laughs> yeah, yeah, this would not be something that would happen, given his uh, response to, like, the episode The Bonding, for example. Um, and also, this fell into that increasingly tired trope of kind of falling back on 9-11 imagery yeah. and tone to try to get across drama. And it's something that happened again and again, I think had impact in certain stories when it was done well. You know, I think the The Dark Knight had some interesting, you know, kind of commentary on that. But, like... This just felt a little exploitive, and it didn't feel like it had anything to say other than just kind of remind people of a real-world tragedy. Well, the other thing is very self-important, and that's a constant problem that uh, Discovery oh, yeah. and Picard have had. Like, you could tell that when the creators wrote this one, they're like, oh, look at how amazing this is. We have David Bowie strumming along. We don't even need dialogue here. We don't need the characters to speak to each other because their actions speak for themselves we are <laughs> the greatest writers that have ever lived like that's what it seemed as if they were like screaming across the screen and the thing is i i, I uh, we've mentioned before joss whedon uh i canceled rightfully so the thing is he is so self-deprecating uh when it comes to his own work it, it's hilarious listening to his commentaries for episodes of uh, buffy angel firefly the avengers any movie he's done because he's so self-deprecating yet his writing credentials and his ability to write like um like stories with conflict in which you're engaged with the characters far exceed anything that the the children of men writers ever accomplished but yet they would never ever in their life admit that this one did not necessarily uh, work i will give points to paramount for when they put out the blu-ray of the short treks this one was not on it <laughs> <laughs> is this one just kind of lost to the ether do you have to can you only stream it no, it's on Picard season one, the Blu-ray oh, set, but okay. they did not put it yeah. in the short treks set. Yeah. I have to say, uh, oh, wait, you bought the season one Blu-ray set, but I did not, right? Yes. Okay. I think I stopped buying Blu-ray sets at uh, Discovery season two. I do have the uh, Lower Deck season one Blu-ray set. Uh, you and I will be picking up our Blu-ray sets for season two pretty soon because we want to get... Mine. Uh, Nice, nice. We, we'll get our review out before uh, the third season premieres, uh, I guess, uh, later on this month. So, yeah, I'm uh, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah. I mean, I bought Picard season one. I think it was because we were going to do that episode of um, Star Trek uh, Picard. You know, is it better to be binge watched? And I thought, you know what? There might be a little bit, bit of value content in terms of me going through those special features. And there was. So it was kind of worth it. But I did not buy it on a day one kind of purchase. I waited quite a while till the price dropped. Well, the best thing I ever did, though, is as I was binge watching Picard, uh, yeah, you know, I, I think I did it in like three goes. Like I did like, I don't know, like four episodes one day, four episodes the next day, and then two episodes to finish it off. Uh, I was listening to our podcast uh, reviews of those episodes um, as uh, I went through the series. It was very entertaining listening to our um, very confused responses. And we just didn't really know what to make of the show like we kept giving yeah. it the benefit of the doubt for a long long time but we kept kind of tugging at the seams and i and like really when we got to the finale that's when we we're like oh this is what it's all been leading up to what trash this is you know like uh so i don't know if you're thinking about rewatching season one of picard 
uh, listen to our podcast from that, um, but only if you want to hear us like just absolutely um, befuddled by what's going on. I can guarantee you, even if season three Picard is great, I still won't know what to make of that series. Yes, yes. <laughs> okay, Cam. Uh, number eight on my list, uh, season one of Discovery, the uh, season finale, in fact, Will You Take My Hand? Uh, this was a terrible, hmm. terrible season finale that was punctuated by an incredible cliffhanger that they did not earn at all, had nothing to do with the story that came before it, but it was when the 1701 appeared randomly for no reason that had been uh, built up uh, leading up to that end, and then you pump in the old-school TOS music going on. It has a visceral reaction with any fan uh, watching it. It did not earn that moment, because what was going on prior to that was some of those most disgraceful season finale writing I've ever witnessed in Star Trek. And it really meant that the writers learned the wrong lessons here, in which you have a very deflated season finale in which they try to wrap up the Klingon War in uh, the most convoluted way uh, in just didn't really make sense. Like all you had to do the entire time was give Laurel access to thermonuclear weapons throughout the lava corridors of the entire planet Kronos and she can hold the entire planet hostage to become chancellor? I'm like, what? This is what you've been building up to this entire <laughs> season? It, you could tell it was just a... It, it is the definition of a deus ex machina. They, they, yeah. they backed themselves into a corner. They didn't know how to wrap it up in a tidy manner. I think what they should have just committed to doing is like, well, I guess we're going to have to continue this on, uh, this war into season uh, two, I, I, I suppose. And then to top it all off, um, you know, it's, it's an incredibly boring episode. And then you have the uh, the Federation Capital uh, meeting uh, in, in Paris. Uh, there's lots of space umbrellas for some reason. But you have the uh, infamous Michael Burnham, we are Starfleet. We <laughs> believe in values because we are Starfleet. Values are great to have when we are Starfleet. And you're like, wow, that's incredibly generic. Um, doesn't make any sense doesn't really take a real strong point of view about anything at all uh this is a terrible finale and they learned all the wrong lessons and watch they're like okay now we have to make every single finale afterwards just nothing but non-stop action and like let's make it a laser light show and almost to the point where it feels like a uh, a marvel third act where you don't really know what's going on and at a certain point you kind of uh disengage i'm a little more forgiving of this one i agree it's not good i remember being frustrated when it ended but to me, it was like, well, the Tilly stuff with George O was fun. Um, seeing Clint Howard was fun. There was li like little elements that I could get some enjoyment out of. So that kept it out of my worst. But like, it's, you know, you're talking about like the resolution to the war. It's both convoluted and insultingly simple. It's like, okay. Like you think of all the hoops we had to jump through just to get to this bomb. It's absurd. It's as confusing and, you know, all over the place as bringing back Culber. But then it's like... No, no, we just put a bomb in the planet. It's all solved. Okay. The end. Why, why didn't they just send, like, Section 31 disguised as Klingons? Why didn't they just send them to Kronos at the very start of the war and do that in the first place? And then the Federation would be <laughs> like, look, hey, we'll blow you up unless you say that you, uh, are, you'll declare some sort of armistice or whatever. And it's also kind of dropped because, like, Laurel's in power in Season 2. Then they leave... You know, all the Klingons behind from that era and head off into the far-off future. So, like, is that bomb still there? <laughs> I, I, Yeah. Is Martok still trying to defuse it at this point? Does he hold the control panel at that point? 
yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. As soon as uh, Worf killed Gowron, he had to reach into like Gowron's pockets and uh, pull out the uh, the uh, control uh, panel. So it's like they set up something they had no interest in exploring, but it's just lingering there now. I mean, and I have a hard time believing, and I hope it doesn't happen, that like uh, Strange New Worlds is going to delve into this because I don't really care. But at the same time, it's just kind of insulting. Yeah, I, this one is just, uh, I think, I'm debating, like, I, I think this is just uh, a, an all-time bad season finale when it comes to Star Trek and just how deflated I was leading up to the last, I don't know, six seconds of it. Mm. And those six seconds, as as exciting as they were, they can't quite make up for what was obviously just like... A, how not to do a finale. It also just emphasized how little planning they had done for the season. They were just kind of making it up as they go went along. They had broad strokes, and we've heard those broad strokes before at conventions, but it's very clear that they had to change those broad strokes uh, as they went along. The whole Mirror Universe stuff, instead of taking place in the last half of season one, it was actually supposed to take place right at the, the, the first half of season one. So they had to really rearrange things. And it's just so clear, like this, it all culminated in an episode where, yeah, this is what happens when you just make things up as you go along and you don't have any sort of plan. Yeah. Uh, I mean, speaking of not having that much of a plan, my number eight was actually, uh, you mentioned it already, the sanctuary. Frustrating for yeah. all the reasons noted. But again, this is not the sort of thing that happens when you've got an ironclad plan for your season. But what is your uh, number seven? Yeah, hide and seek from season two of Star Trek Picard and watch they mm -hmm. explicitly sell, spell out what happened to Picard's mother. Um, it is incredibly insensitive towards people dealing with mental health. And it's also completely frightening in how mental health is still being dealt with in the 24th century in which a like vineyard grower decides to lock his wife in a room to help solve her depression yeah. issues like i'm sure people know cam i don't even think there's anyone doing that nowadays in like in, on planet earth like it makes no sense to me but essentially the other egregious part is that it retcons picard's personality his aloofness for the last 35 years i always thought of it as a feature not a bug here, they made it very clear the reason he's aloof, the reason he's had trouble loving other people, uh, well, he's flawed and damaged, and this is how he became flawed and damaged. Now, I realize there is input from Patrick Stewart about where he wanted to take the character. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't know if it's ever a good idea where you have a uh, lead actor having so much creative input into the character. Uh, you know, that resulted in, like, action hero Picard in a lot of those movies, which didn't really seem in line with his character. But this, to me, it just it felt like a betrayal of Picard and came at the expense of, of something that I, I just don't think should be treated in such a callous manner, which is, you know, somebody you know, taking their own life and, and just depicting it in a way. And it's just that that just left me like like my skin crawling. Like, I, I, I can't imagine them fumbling and, and, and doing something so insensitive like this ever again but they th again they thought these writers thought they were doing something incredibly profound here and it just does not work it, I, I, it's a profound failure here i really don't like this one and i think there's a lot of issues here i think one is like as you said like patrick stewart has this idea that he wants to tackle in a season 
uh, maybe not the best of ideas, but okay. Like he presents these notes to the uh, to the writers, and then if like the writers are tapped into kind of the Star Trek writing style, you know, they know how to tell these stories. They go, okay, how do we make this Star Trek? They skip that step. They told a story that, as you said, doesn't make any sense within the timeline of where Star Trek is happening. Um, this seems to exist within like. It feels old timey. It feels like Jane Eyre or something. Like you know, Picard. It, Picard's dad was even wearing like a little like newsboy cap. You know, uh, throughout <laughs> parts of this uh, episode. You know, he, he was dressing like he was from the 19th century. It feels like kind of gothic storytelling, and you can look at the episode Sub Rosa from uh, TNG in season seven there, which is like kind of a ludicrous episode, and is also kind of a you know old timey gothic story. But you look at how they transplanted that to Star Trek storytelling. Picard just dodged all that. And so they made kind of like a dreary episode. And as like kind of obvious and cliched as a lot of the stuff on screen is, it's also told in a very boring way where it's just kind of characters wandering around those tunnels. Yeah. Like, oh my <laughs> God. Tunnels. It just feels like, it feels <laughs> like a slog. And like, this is like the pun, uh, penultimate episode of the season. And I mean, I don't know about you, Tyler, but I was like, okay, let's get to the point where this kind of season pays itself off because it feels like it's been spinning its wheels. And this was just like even more frustrating because you're like, oh God, they've got one episode to resolve everything. And then when you watch that finale, it's not on my list, but boy, does it speed through all of its kind of payoffs just to get to the end. Well, at least with the uh, previous season's penultimate episode, et uh, in Arcadia, I can't remember the rest of it. Ego. Blah, blah, blah. But, um... Oh, there you go. Good for you, sir. Uh, but at least that episode had momentum mm -hmm. going for it. Yep. You know, the, the, the things you felt like, okay, we're going places. You felt confident they could resolve everything. Um, I, I wasn't necessarily satisfied by, uh, you know, part two, uh, or I, I, the season finale of part one, although the data farewell was, was excellent. Uh, this one is just the, the timing was so wrong here. Mm -hmm. yeah. This is not how you get somebody pumped about where you're going into the finale. How, who would watch this episode and be like, can't wait to see how they wrap up the whole season after this? <sighs> not me. <laughs> I'm yeah. sure there's someone yeah. out there, but not me. Um, speaking of wrapping up a season, number seven <laughs> for me was That Hope Is You Part 2, the finale to season three, Discovery. This... I really hate this episode, and I think it's because um, um, with season two's finale, which I put on my best list, they kind of established sort of Discovery is the action show, how you could do an action-based finale that paid off your characters in interesting ways. Flash forward to the finale of season three, and it's just like action gobbledygook with nothing particularly interesting going on. You have Burnham fighting and pushing people into a gelatinous computer. You have Osira, <laughs> a villain who flirted with having shades of kind of interest to her, kind of some ambiguity, a little bit of gray, that's immediately jettisoned in favor of just kind of having action stuff. And I think she just gets shot at the end of this. Um, you've got a like fight with Cowboy in like a uh, turbo lift system that makes no sense. It's just kind of and, like... And by that, it, it's <laughs> the, the, the turbo lift system that defies the laws of physics in terms of like the size of the ship, uh, the exterior versus the interior. That, yes, yeah. sorry to interrupt, but I will, I will never not be angry at how they depict turbo lifts in new Star Trek. I want lower decks to make fun of it. <laughs> so you can like look at a you know, like a weak season of a show. And if you have kind of a memorable finale, you go, well, you know what? I kind of like that one. This one, season three, I was frustrated throughout. 
And like this finale actively made me angry because it felt like it was not even like exploring what the season was really about. It was just saying, you know what? We don't really know. Let's just give them like an hour of action and that'll be good enough. And so after having to listen to them talk about the burn for like a whole chunk of episodes in a row, this is the finale. And it was just so profoundly uninteresting. And I think one of the things with Star Trek Discovery is even if like the storytelling was rocky, they could usually end their season in a way where I was interested to see what was going to happen the next season, whether it was teasing the Enterprise at the end of season one or, you know, the promises, you know, at the end of season two of the future. The end of this one, it was like, well, um, we've got gray uniforms, you know, uniforms that you'll see (laughs) never again. That was what they had to tease. And it was like, oh, my God, I don't even care about this. So I found this one just, you were saying, you know, about um, the season one finale being maybe the worst finale in Star Trek. I think for me, this was the worst finale in Star Trek. Well, look, uh, we, we have Stamets snarling at uh, his new captain, Michael Burnham, at the very end mm-hmm. because she jettisoned him out in a uh, personal escape pod instead of allowing him to try to uh, save uh, Culber. And they never follow up with that in the next season. It was just kind of like, it, it, it felt as if like, hey, we've got tension, not going to follow up with it. This episode is also guilty of uh, continuing to make uh, Tilly look like an idiot captain uh, following up from the previous episode, uh, part one. Um, it's kind of like, yeah, this is why you don't make your ensign an XO and bad stuff happens. And then even the next season, <laughs> uh, when she's now been promoted to lieutenant. After um, giving up the ship, uh, she's even commenting on how she kind of felt like a dope because of this. It's because the writers made you look like a dope here. You also have just like other stuff that made me so angry, like when uh, everybody was running out of air on the way to the nacelles in order to stop the explosion. And then Awashikin was like, I know how to hold my breath for a long, long time because of that Luddite colony I grew up on. They're like, go ahead of us, go ahead of us. And then she had to stare at them longingly for like, um, 10 beats too long going I love you all I'm just like go save the freaking ship what are you doing it, it's like that sort of like plotting like let's try to tug at your heartstrings versus could you imagine Jordy LaForge ever <laughs> like um not looking back his first duty he is running his ass down to mean engineering to save the ship he's not uh going Worf I love you I'm going to hold my breath now you know it, it's just this sort of stuff that just makes me like uh like this is a I agree with you Kim this is a terrible season finale and again it's like the lessons learned from uh will you take my hand they are repeated here where let's just have like nonsensical action unfold and let our viewers disengage and not care about what's going to happen next. Because guess what, Cam? I had a sinking suspicion that, uh, I don't know, um, Murdom would save the day. Did, did you get that feeling as you were watching the episode? <laughs> um, you know, it was kind of lingering, but then uh, I thought, no, that no, could never happen. No. no, the ship's in danger, totally, yeah. 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 Yeah, and just like manufactured melodrama throughout in place of earned character beats. Uh, Cam, number six. I suspect this one's going to be higher up on your list, but I've got Sukal. Uh, this is where <laughs> we, we finally address the, the, the nature and the constitution of the burn, and they have to do it through radioactive <laughs> man boy. Perhaps the most derided character uh, in Star Trek Discovery, at least on the part of this podcast. It, it's Here's why this one makes me so angry, in which you have what is believed to be... Uh, a kind of a utopia of sorts, this federation in which we have uh, 
values of supporting other people, other planets. It's like this egalitarianism meant to, uh, our, our motivations are based on our own personal experiences and journeys and furthering ourselves, uh, becoming better human beings, uh, rather than kind of the pursuits of uh, wealth and uh, the accumulation of objects here. You would think that this would be something that could withstand whatever happens to it, but a radioactive man-boy, he witnesses something traumatic, and that makes the entire galaxy as we know it crumble. I'm like, really? You have billions of lives lost, all for this? You know? It's just, it made me angry in that you had already invested like nine episodes, or even ten episodes, uh, I should say, leading up to the this as the explanation of the burn and why the Federation is not as it is. The, the, the fact is, I thought it would have been far more interesting if the Federation had simply fallen apart through its own malaise. You know, like th there's other explanations for it. You know, maybe th there's an other forces or fragmentation going on with the Federation that caused its fall. I, I never needed the burn. I didn't need the Federation to fall apart because of an external event. I, I There's so many more layers to discover if it's something internal going on. And this is why I just kind of, it, it, it just totally biffed the opportunity that was presented with them to jet forward into the future and rebuild the Federation and for, for reasons that make way more sense than radioactive man-boy crying really hard. This episode, the solution to the burn feels almost like the writers having a game of telephone where like <laughs> the first person had like a really good solution. Then they passed it on and it just kept going around person to person to person. So at the end, the, the person that had to like write it down was like <laughs> screaming radioactive Kelpian. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> what? like what? That's that's not what I originally had. But this is, yeah, as you said, it's like an external thing that is frustrating for, you know, many reasons. But like one I mean, it's it's very silly, but also there's no way to ever predict it. There's no way to ever say, like, organically looking at the story episode to episode through that season three, this makes sense how we arrived here. Yeah. It really has none of that. It's entirely this out of left field, like, oh, that's what it was. And I would never really be in favor of this for a season, but had it been an element of Star Trek canon that was established and what you understood, for example, say it was like a Q thing. You'd go, well, you know, I don't really like that that was the answer to everything, but I understand that within the context of the universe of Star Trek. This was something where you got to, like, jump through so many hoops to even, like, wrap your head around it. Like, as you said, like, wipes out dilithium in, like, the entire galaxy? Like, what? Like, that's an unbelievable amount of power. That's more power than, like, anything we've really seen in Star Trek. And it seems kind of, like, crazy just to go through. And then it's not bad enough that the reveal happens. Um, and the reveal is just like hair pulling, but like, you've got to get through one of the dreariest episodes in the history of Star Trek <laughs> of this like creature who is doing that thing that drives you crazy where it's like, they know the answer, but they are in a, you know, state of not being able to communicate it through the entire, you know, like 95% of the episode. And so they just keep breaking down and you're just like, come on, just spit it out. Let's get the solution. But instead they're like battling like a CG seaweed monster. And I'm like, oh my god, this episode drives me absolutely crazy. And I wish I had, like, episodes of previous, you know, quote-unquote classic Star Trek to really compare it to. But this feels like a level of bad that I don't know exists prior to Discovery. You know, it, it, 
Um, it almost reminds me of Tin Man. You know, you're doing oh, dealing yeah. with kind of the organic, uh, uh, spacefaring alien in which you're you're struggling to communicate with it. But Tin Man is actually like um, a, a pretty interesting episode. They're doing stuff that we haven't really seen before, um, and how they execute it in Star Trek, we haven't seen it that way before. How they uh, they execute it here, it's just so dreadful. Yeah. The, uh, you know, I, I will hand it to this. I, I did like seeing um, Doug Jones out of uh, makeup for a full episode. Uh, he, he had a bad toupee on, which is unfortunate. But uh, And I'll, I'll give you this. The VFX were pretty good like are pretty well done but beyond that like i just like this was just uh, we keep using the word slog again and again this is what i think new era discovery uh picard is most guilty of it's just like these episodes feeling like a slog just non-stop wheel spinning to get to where we already know that they're going and and that's what drives me insane yeah it almost feels in some ways also like skin of evil you know with armis but, like, if you put a level of importance on that episode yeah. that was, like, suffocating to kind of watch. So, yeah. Um, my number six is actually a Strange New Worlds episode. It's the mm. Elysian Kingdom. Okay. Uh, an episode that, oh, look, I love a good TOS silly episode, whether it's, you know, The Trouble with Tribbles or Shore Leave or something. And I can kind of appreciate what they're going for with this, of allowing the actors to kind of dress up in medieval fare and kind of be silly. But, like, this episode was just, like, kind of, like, dreadful storytelling because it was just actors kind of being campy. There was no momentum to the storytelling whatsoever. And it was also, as I discussed in the review, you know, a story built around a fictional narrative that we don't have any grasp as to where it's going or what even the characters or the concepts of the universe are. So it feels like actors speaking uh, just gobbledygook throughout like an hour. And so I found it just completely frustrating to watch. It has no drama to anything that's going on until you get to the final moments where you have, you know, Mabenga and his daughter and that resolution, which that is no great resolution either. Um, but at least I understand it within the characters. This episode just gives me nothing with those characters for like 90% of the runtime. So I don't want to see any more episodes like this in Strange New Worlds. Well, remember like just like two episodes earlier, he was given all this like medical data mm -hmm. uh, from the uh, that child exploitation or maybe an exploitation isn't the uh, the most uh, precise term, but the uh, the child endangerment episode. Yeah. And he, he and then you go two episodes later it's like nope not going anywhere and they're like okay so what the writers are trying to do is um inorganically set it up as if mabenga has absolutely no choice but to give up his daughter to this nebula for the rest of her life that is a huge decision to for him to allow on behalf of his like daughter who's like six years old i think they make a point of saying like well, the daughter agrees to it. I'm like, well, she's a child. She doesn't know what she's even agreeing to. And then they're like, oh, no, no, well, guess what? Uh, we'll follow up. She's like 30 years old now, and she still agrees with it. I'm like, she's never had a life. She doesn't know what human experience is really like. She's been living her entire life in this fairy tale kingdom with Deborah the Nebula. And <laughs> like, I, I'm just like, I, I, I can't believe like, uh, this is like an episode. It definitely doesn't make my top 10 list. Cam, there are about like 
14 episodes of Star Trek Picard that I just found incredibly boring that I would put mm. over this one. Uh, but this one is, I, 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 we're on the same page in, in that, like, there are episodes that kind of make you feel betrayed. And this is an episode that by the time I got to the end of it, and I, I found, you know, getting to the end of it, like, quite the slog. But by the time we got the the end of it, I did feel betrayed by how um, artificial the motivations for the characters were. And it was only because the writers had convolutedly decided this is what we want to do with this rather than making it more of an organic journey for... Look, they, Mabenga could have just put the daughter in a pattern buffer indefinitely until he finds some sort of cure here. But I think they also... We kind of pointed this out uh, leading up to the episodes, a couple episodes in advance. We're like, so what happens in season two when like, the, the daughter is... I don't know, she's like a goes from like age seven to like age nine when they're filming season two like they're gonna have to like account for like these jumps in uh the age of children which anybody who's seen lost that kind of became problematic <laughs> at a certain point as well yeah i mean it'll be like uh by the time the series ends it'll be like when they brought back um brian C- uh, cranston and aaron paul <laughs> like later down the road for the um breaking bad movie <laughs> uh in what way well, it was like um, showing them as like prequel, but it, they'd aged so much. Oh, I, I, didn't, I didn't think they looked that. Uh, it was a little jarring. Sorts, a little jarring. Okay, it's yeah. only a bit a ten year age difference, and you know, I, sure. I, but was it more jarring just because, um, like, Jesse no longer uh-huh. like dressed like a wannabe anymore, and was t- you know calling like yo, you know, like that sort of like uh, slang. Like it was just kind of like. I wonder if that was kind of the, the, the jarring elements. Although, tell me, to me, what was most jarring is when you had Jesse Plemons um, return in, <laughs> yeah. in the El Camino movie. And uh, he looked quite a bit different there than when we left off uh, his character um, uh, during that uh, time as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, what about you? What's your number five? Well, <laughs> Cam, it's That Hope Is You. Uh, mm. So, you, you know, you're, uh, I was debating whether or not uh, uh, Will You Take My Hand is the worst uh, finale. I did have That Hope Is You Part 2 uh, up above it. So you and I seem to agree that maybe that is like the worst uh, season finale that we've gotten. Uh, we just shared our thoughts. So that's my number five. Still a terrible, terrible finale. So my number five is Rosetta from Season 4 Discovery. Ooh. Yes. Yeah. This is like one of the most punishing hours of Discovery, which is really saying something, actually. <laughs> this is the one <laughs> where they kind of unlock, you know, how they're going to communicate with these aliens that have been, you know, kind of plaguing them through the season. And they're like skeletal gas bags or something. <laughs> like, yes. What? This is where they kind of unlock, you know, the Rosetta key to understanding that they need to communicate through emotions to these aliens. And, like, that's all well and good. I don't really have a great issue with that being the solution. But, like, this is one of those episodes where it's like, okay, we got Space Madness. We got Saru breaking down on this, you know, kind of cheesy-looking planet. And it just drags on and on and on. And I swear, like, Discovery often seems to think it's, like, the first ever TV show, (laughs) film, anything to look at emotions. To tell emotional stories. I'm like... I feel like we've been watching these since, I don't know, maybe the dawn of film? Like, they, they've existed in some manner throughout the history of storytelling, but, like, Discovery's like, people, we are talking about emotions here. I don't think that's ever happened. And it's just, like, it's kind of that self-satisfied thing. 
And I even if it was self-satisfied and they were a little self-serious about it, eh, you could still get a good episode. It's that they like portray it in such like a just unbearably dull, uninteresting, and just frequently cliched way that I just find so grating. Uh, them just wandering around aimlessly having like, and, and I'm trying to diminish it, but them just having panic attacks. And the thing is, it just, they dragged it out for so long. And it's, here's the thing. It's like when you're making a film or a television show, you make your point, you get to the point, but the problem is they keep hitting the same beats again and again and again and again. And it's mm-hmm. like, we get it. You've made your point. Let's further the story. And I think this episode is probably like 55 minutes long. Like, I, if I recall correctly, this could have easily been one of the uh, patented uh, Picard 32 minutes and you're done sorts of episodes here. Yep. Cam, uh, like, I, this is where, like, season four, uh, I, I think it was the biggest slog uh, we've ever endured in New Trek for me. I just, I still have uh, difficulty imagine rewatching season four of discovery whereas i could easily watch season two of picard not because i think season two of picard is good but it, it moves at a clip despite all the stupid stuff that's going on throughout i uh, i this might be the one that i would have the toughest time just bringing myself to rewatch when it's next up uh in my uh queue uh for streaming and it's also longer than you know picard so yeah yeah Alrighty, cam so i guess uh my number four uh, <laughs> uh, speaking of Picard, uh, monsters. This is when we are, uh, Picard gets hit by a Tesla and has to go in for brain surgery at a walk-in clinic and we're mm-hmm. inside of his psyche for an hour. Uh, his, the, the embodiment of his father is now a, uh, ship's counselor, uh, played by the, the great James Callis, an actor I absolutely adore. He played uh, Dr. By- Gaius uh, Baltar on uh, uh, Battlestar Galactica, uh, put to terrible use as Picard's uh, father here, or the father figure here. Uh, you have the, the Borg Queen on that really weird rampage. She's eating batteries from <laughs> tele- or from like smartphones. And then you have like Rafi and Seven just wandering around aimlessly through Los Angeles, squabbling with each other. You know, there's lines like, you're manipulative, Raffi. And like, what, you are? You know, it's just, it's like, it's again the whole tell-don't-show problem that uh, these writers in live-action New Trek seem to be constantly guilty of here. But it's the whole Picard stuff, like, wandering around the manor, uh, you know, I'm just like, what? They're all building up to this with regards to how they, like, really hitting the themes of this whole season. I'm just like, really? This is what you want to spend a full hour on right here. And I think at this point, we're really, we kept wondering, like, what is this whole diversion supposed to be? What is the whole point of it? And you have, this almost seems kind of like a, uh, uh, more of like a, a, a rest stop and just them trying to spin their wheels once more because they really, this is a season where you have about like three or four episodes worth of story stretched over like 10 episodes. Again, Cam, we're getting some episodes that are like 32 minutes long. You know, that's that really tells you how they had so little story to tell in season four. And this was, to me, just kind of the worst that season four had to offer. Yeah, I can agree with that. And this one also offered the um, fight with the board queen in the parking lot, um, which was one of the most like rundown, kind of like budget looking Star Trek sequences in some time uh, for a show that actually does seem to cost something. Um 
And it also featured a trope that I've mentioned just a couple minutes ago that drives me crazy, which is like this like fake narrative story that we're kind of going through where you had like stuff to do with this childhood book that Picard had read with his mother. I don't know this story. I don't understand like kind of the breakdown of how this operates within the episode. And you've got like CG monsters popping out and everything. This is just... I can't stand episodes like this. It doesn't offer me anything. It doesn't give me character insight. It feels like it's just built to prolong the episode before you get some sort of resolution. And it does it in ways that are kind of depressing and miserable to watch. So, like, what's my takeaway? I don't walk away from this going like, I can't wait to see what happens next week. My takeaway is, this show is kind of unpleasant to watch, and I don't really like this. It's not an episode that you watch, and you're like, you know what? I really want to rewatch this one right now. Nope. There have been episodes of Strange New Worlds like, yeah, I want to rewatch that. That's amazing. Uh, you know, like the finale, uh, you know, Quality of Mercy. I was just like, I, I watched that one uh, twice in quick succession. It was, it was awesome. Did not have the same feeling about monsters. Yeah, there's a lot of new Trek I will happily sit and rewatch, and I can't imagine sitting through the episode Monsters. Like, that's one of those ones where I'm just like, I just, I don't know if I could. It would have to be many, many years from now where I'm suddenly like, let's go revisit, you know, Picard Season 2, because Season 3 Picard was one of the greatest seasons in the history of Star Trek. So maybe <laughs> I should go back. <laughs> uh, we'll see. So my number four is another Picard episode uh, from Season 1, Stardust City Rag. Um, boy, this was like one of the most unfortunate clashings of tone that have ever happened within Star Trek with the, um, you know, the butchering of each ab, seven going on a murder quest mixed in with pimp hats and silliness. And it was like, wow, like this is really badly handled just from a tone perspective. It felt like they had kind of two concepts they were working with and they just mashed them together. Um, and it was you know, they built up the return of Seven, and we were all incredibly excited to see it. And, like, this was the delivery? I mean, I get it, but Jazel was the greatest villain of all villains, as mentioned on the Star Trek, um, you know, uh, Picard Season 1 Blu-ray. But nonetheless, like, this was not the kind of Seven you want to really you know, return to. They set up stuff with the Fenris Rangers that was never explored. So you can't even say that this was like kind of opening the door for where we would explore that character's backstory. Nope, never really did it. Um, and so like, what does this episode offer other than, I mean, I think people only really remember it because of the silly outfits and the Echeb stuff. It was as badly handled as Patrick Stewart's French accent. Uh, <laughs> Kim, this one felt like a complete portrayal. It's not just that you are treating a character or dispatching a character such as Icheb in such a callous way, in a way that just feels like icky and gross. And the writer said, well, we wanted to make you feel that way. So you were invested in the stakes that Seven had in front of her and why she would suddenly want to become a serial killer. And I'm like, so then that's a betrayal of Seven of Nine as well. Why, why did you want to make her a serial killer too? Uh, Bejazel was a terrible, uninteresting villain. Um, and I, I think uh, it was the Blu-ray extras uh, that mm, you were yeah. referring to that uh, described her as the villain of all villains. How delusional are the writers here? Like, I'm just like, like they were just completely off their rocker here. I w was walking away from this and like thinking like, how can I honestly watch this again? And then <laughs> I think to cap it off, we we have um uh 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 Dr. Uh, Agnes Girardi um again murdering her own lover 
once they fetch Bruce Maddox off from mm-hmm. uh, that planet, I'm just like, wait, wait, so yet another betrayal of things that we've invested in, like a, uh, a classic character plus a uh, more contemporary character who's suddenly a murderer. What were they like seriously on when they came up with these ideas in the writer's room? Like these are terrible ideas. And I know that they had to rewrite um, about 80% of this season on the fly. Like they literally had to throw out the scripts. This one, it, it's so obviously just like the result of like a, a, a tossed away script. Let's have to do a last minute script and come up with whatever's sticking on the wall here. One of the bummers is this is kind of, in some ways, one of the more standalone episodes of Star Trek Picard. And it's just like kind of lame. It's not fun or not dramatically interesting because at least then you'd have kind of like that magic to make the sanest man go mad where there is an episode within that arc-based season where you can kind of just go like, oh, that's a fun one to revisit. But uh, that is not the case for Stardust City Rag. Yeah. All right. So uh, for my number three is Stormy Weather. This is from season four of uh, Star Trek Discovery. Cam, I had been kind of giving the show the benefit of the doubts. I I, I like the premiere. Uh, you're going off the rails with All is Possible. And, uh, you know, there there's, um, you know, like the, the the prisoner episode. I was just like, okay, it, it's watchable. The uh, the way that they're handling the mystery is a little bit better uh, with the DMA than how they handled uh, the um, mystery of... Uh, the uh, burn the season before, but stormy weather, just the, uh, the, the self-importance that they have when you're giving Burnham that hero shot in the EV suit as, or EVA suit when she is walking through the corridors as a Messiah, as the ship's overheating and you have this swelling music and it is to let you know that we are the most important show that has ever existed. And if you disagree, you are a moron. And you then you have uh, Zora or Zara, the uh, uh, computer, the sentient computer. She starts singing to keep her mind off of being stressed out. I, I think this is also the episode in which uh, we have Book dealing with Ghost Dad, if I yep. recall correctly, as well. I think so, yeah. I, I was just absolutely dumbfounded that anybody could write this. And it's not just that you write a bad script. It's that how you execute it and you give it just such importance that you do here uh, this is where i officially realized like oh this is going to be yet another sucky season of star trek discovery like there's some potential in the uh premiere you kind of like we're like i don't know just kind of i don't know like uh dragging things out for the first couple episodes but i wasn't off the bandwagon just yet this one tossed me off the bandwagon and i i just can't imagine ever watching this one again this was not a good episode, but I think I was a little nicer to it because I just like some of the space problem stuff. Um, I thought that was at least kind of interesting, even though it, to me, I think the problems really fall into the resolution stuff where it gets so ridiculous with Zora singing fire going off all over the place and Burnham clutching that, you know, chair. You're like, oh, this is ridiculous. And also the ghost dad stuff was really brutal. Um, and just, it felt weird. It's like you flash back on it and you're like, what was the significance of that? Cause it's not something that like, you know, was an ongoing threat in that season. It's just like this weird invention for that episode that is really grating. I don't know what they were thinking with that. Very bizarre. Um, as for me, my number three was hide and seek from Picard season two, which we already talked about, but yes, just a very unpleasant hour of television. Uh, speaking of another unpleasant hour of television, my number two was Saints of Imperfection, 
which mm-hmm. uh, that, that to me is uh, my low watermark for um, Star Trek Discovery, where it just it, it felt like a betrayal. It it made me, it still makes me angry. Cam, that clip of us discussing <laughs> the whole means of bringing back Culber and how you and I just broke down how it doesn't make any sort of logical sense here. So now that's my number two, Saints of Imperfection. My number two is Monsters, the low watermark for me for Picard. And this was Picard season two, and we just talked about it. But like, this is another one that's just... Ugh. Star Trek is really tough when it tries to tackle like kind of like horror storytelling. And there's almost like some Guillermo del Toro kind of energy to this one. And it's just none of it works and i just find you mentioned it earlier but a lot of stuff dealing with the you know the suicide of picard's mother is dealt with in a way that's deeply unfortunate to watch it just feels very hackneyed and you don't want to do that hackneyed you want to do that really properly and respectfully so just drags this whole you know the season down but this episode in particular well Speaking of things not done respectfully, uh, my number one, Stardust City Rag, for all the reasons I just mentioned, uh, this is just such a betrayal to fans. I, I like uh, Showrunner Michael Siobhan said that there was a big debate going on in the writer's room about uh, how you want to depict things uh, here, especially with Icheb. Uh, he said he wasn't necessarily in favor of the violence that was depicted, but he eventually lost that battle. I want I want names, Cam. <laughs> I want to know who <laughs> thought this was good storytelling here. But uh, the worst of uh, uh, New Trek for me, it, it, it's really most emblematic for me of what's wrong with New Trek right now. It is Stardust City Rag. And for me, the worst was Sukal. Um, we've talked about it at length. Um, I've raged about this episode for a long time now on the podcast. And uh, it's not just like the worst episode for me of New Trek. You look at the wider universe of Star Trek. There's not that many episodes that I would put below this in terms of what I would rather rewatch. I am struggling at the moment to come up with one. I would rather watch Shades of Grey than Sukal. I don't know that there's a whole <laughs> lot. Um, alternative factor. Still better. Um, <laughs> I'm just racking my brain. Uh, yeah. So like to me, this is just the worst of the worst. And uh, no more of this, please. Yeah. Well, uh, hopefully all the writers have been listening to this entire episode. They've learned all their lessons. And uh, season three of Picard, it's going to be the TNG reboot that we've been hoping for for the last two, three years now. That's right. And so should we recite our lists? Yeah. Uh, Cam, I'll go from uh, 10 to 1. Uh, number 10, The Sanctuary. Number 9, All is Possible. Number 8, Will You Take My Hand. Number 7, Hide and Seek. Number 6, Sukal. Number five, the That Hope Is You, part two. Number four, Monsters. Number three, Stormy Weather. Number two, Saints of Imperfection. Number one, Stardust City Rag. And for me, number 10 was Saints of Imperfection. Number nine was Children of Mars, the short trek. Number eight was The Sanctuary. Number seven was That Hope Is You, part two. Number six was The Elysian Kingdom. Number five, Rosetta. Number four, Stardust City Rag. Number three, Hide and Seek. Number two, Monsters, and number one, Sukal. Excellent. So, folks, if you think that we've just been too down on New Trek, don't worry. We have a great bevy of episodes to uh, go over if you did not catch last week's, and that's the best of New Trek. And, and we actually, we tackle all the same series, and we explain why, you know, Discovery, Picard, a lot of shows that are, are quite well represented here, um, they're also very adept at making like fantastic episodes of star trek so look i I think that's what frustrates us most of all is we know that they're capable of it and they keep making episodes like uh sukal and stardust city rig 
I think it just underlines between these two podcast episodes how inconsistent New Trek can be. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that kind of wraps us up on the worst of New Trek, and uh, that means this assignment is complete. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, we want to hear from you. Jump on over to the Facebook page at facebook.com slash subspacepod. Let us know if you disagree with any of our picks. Are any of these in your best column? We would love to know and love to know why. Um, and also... <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> let us know what some of you your... You animals! <laughs> and let us know of some of your least favorite episodes of the new era. We would also love to hear those. Wait, wait Cam, Cam, which episode of... In our respective lists, do you think has like the most chance of being uh, someone else's like uh, favorite episode or something? Favorite or at least in the plus column? Um, yeah. I think the Elysian Kingdom has a chance. Yeah. Um, I think Will You Take My Hand? Yes. Does. Uh, I, I feel like I'm unsure about Stardust City Rag. I think some people might like it. And some people might like All Is Possible, but if you are, uh, you are... Um, not somebody I will be asking for uh, movie advice from about like what to go see any given weekend. That's right. Okay, so Tyler, what are we doing next week? Cam, we will be tackling the evolution of Janeway. We have tackled the evolution of other uh, characters before. Uh, yeah, I think we most recently did the evolution of Picard leading into season two. And I think we're tracking kind of the different eras of Picard. And, and this is going to be fun with Janeway because this character's not done. Uh, we kind of had the, uh, the, the prodigy stuff going on and there's been hints from old Gru that maybe there's some, uh, live action Janeway, uh, still to be discovered. And so, um, I think it's going to be great to, to see where, uh, we started with the character, uh, what the Delta Quadrant <laughs> did to her and where we're finding her now at this point in Star Trek lore. I'm looking forward to this because, yeah, Janeway's a character that's kind of been on my mind lately just with all the talk about the documentary that's going to be coming out on Voyager, obviously Prodigy, and a future for that character. So this should be a lot of fun. Okay, you can, of course, also find us on the Twitter. I'm at Cam V as in Visions of Seaweed Monsters, Smith. You can find me at Reportin. That's R-E-P. P as in Possible. Possible. Possibly don't make this Starfleet Academy spinoff. Uh, O-R-T-O-N. Okay, so until next time, the arena is closed. Life is bare, gloom and misery everywhere, stormy weather, and I can't get myself together. I'm weary all the time. Transfer complete.